0: This is Caleb, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Michael Ware to talk with him about his brand new book, The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation, and the Renovation of Public Life. Now, here on the Learner's Corner, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because there are just some conversations that they can be difficult to have with uh, just many many different people but what we want to do here is create a place to where you can listen you can learn and you can listen to people who you disagree with and maybe in the process of listening to them discover something that you didn't know now one of the other things that i do uh from time to time is give out recommended resources as well. And you can subscribe to my Substack letter to where I give recommendations for some of the best things that I'm currently uh, learning from and some of the things that I'm learning about as well. And the link to that will be in the show notes. Now I've been aware of Michael for a little while now and, you know, have, have always been interested in some of the work that he does, especially uh, with the center for christianity in public life and you know we are uh here in the learner's corner we're not a stranger to uh discuss or to, to discussing and learning about uh political matters as well and so whenever i found out he was uh, coming out with this book i was definitely interested in it now let me tell you a little bit about michael and then we can jump into the conversation so Michael Ware is the founder, president, and CEO of the Center for Christianity and Public Life, a nonpartisan nonprofit institution that contends for the credibility of Christian resources and public life for the public good. For well over a decade, he had served as a trusted resource and advisor for a range of civic and religious leaders on matters of faith and public life, including as a White House and presidential campaign staffer. Previously, he founded and led Public Square Strategies, a consulting firm that helps religious and political organizations, businesses, and others navigate the rapidly changing landscape of religion and politics in America. And his first book is Reclaiming Hope, which examines the role of faith in the Obama years and what it means today. And he has co-authored many other books as well. And his writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, and other publications as well. And currently him and his wife, Melissa, live in Maryland with their beloved daughters as well. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Michael Ware. Well, Michael, it is good to have you on the Learners Corner podcast today.
1: So great to be with you. Thanks for thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, and you know, just as uh, we're beginning, one of the places that I like to begin, uh, you know, interviews and conversations with, especially whenever I am talking with somebody who has written a book, is I love hearing the origin story behind of it. And so, you've written this book, "The Spirit of Our Politics." And I would love to hear, you know, was there a moment, was there a series of things that led you to go, hey, I I need to start working on this book or work on this project?
1: Yeah, a number of things. Uh, First, just in terms of the development of the ideas, um, this was the book I wanted to write and that I sort of learned that I wanted to write as I was finishing my first book. It, It was really... Uh, my first book was, uh, a book, uh, reclaiming hope. Um, and it, it became clear in some ways this book picks up where that book left off. You don't need to have read the first book, but the first mm-hmm. book is sort of a personal story. It's looking back at my time in government, working in the white house. It's, it's, um, kind of historical narrative, um, this this book is a much more forward looking, and much more idea driven. Um, and so, so one way to tell the story is: this is the book I wanted to write and wasn't trying sure to have the opportunity to write after I after I wrote the first one. The other thing I'd say is that so the spirit of our politics is a book in which I am uh, seeking to uh, apply. The ideas of Dallas Willard, who was a philosopher and 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 writer, um, to politics and public life, um, and we could talk about why I think that is important. But uh, I was introduced to Dallas Dallas's work when I was working in the White House, and um, I didn't. <laughs> someone sent me the divine conspiracy. My, like my first week on the job and i thought why are you sending me this dense book uh and it sat on my shelf for 6 months uh but but i picked it up and it uh it 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 really changed and impacted my life and sent me on what has now been a a 15 year journey uh through Dallas's work uh in ways that has uh, have affected my professional outlook, my personal outlook, family decisions, work decision. I mean, just uh, a lot. So, um, so I think readers will sense that uh, you don't have to be familiar with Willard, but I, I think part of my hope is that uh, readers will uh, uh, fall in love with with Dallas a bit yeah. uh, as as they read through the book.
0: Yeah, and that was that was definitely the case for me. Like I've always been familiar with him and I think I've read like one or two things from him. And again, you you reference him so much in the book that you have at least piqued my interest <laughs> of check of checking in, you know, you know checking out some of his books. Uh there, there's a couple things I want to follow up on that you mentioned in that. And the first thing is like talk to me about like that moment whenever or you know that that time whenever you're finishing your first book and you go, okay, how do I, or you You want to, you realize like, oh, the book that I really want to write is the next book in that. Like, talk to me about like, what, what helped you discover that? Or like, was there like a, a turning point or something like that? There were
1: ideas that emerged writing the first book, that the first book wasn't the appropriate form to fully flesh out. Mm-hmm. So for instance, there's a line, There's a line that I added to Reclaiming Hope. Uh, The state of our politics is a reflection of the state of our souls. Mm. I didn't start the book uh, writing that. I think that sort of narratively, I think what I added that to the first book because I wanted folks reading the first book to view things that I had written through that lens among others. But uh, I felt like oh this this needs greater unpacking, and this really takes me in a in a in a different direction, or it takes me further down a path I didn't even know I was on. Um, that that yeah that led me uh, that led me to write to write this book. I, I also think um, th- this book, well the first book is it's it's core is experience and storytelling and then it moves to ideas uh, uh, from there uh, this book is built around some some core ideas and resources mm-hmm. and then points to some stories to to um, illustrate uh, the 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 points i'm trying to make so it's structurally it's a different book it was a the experience of writing this book was was different and challenging and invigorating and uh, uh and and so so yeah that that's that's some of how it came together
0: yeah you know i i want to also go back to what you were mentioning to whenever you first encountered uh dallas willard's work as wall yeah and so like you're you're in the white house and you're handed this book and you start reading it. And you kind of take can you kind of take me through like the like like one of the I guess the times are one of the things that like changed yes. you in that?
1: Yes. Um this wasn't absence in my so I I became a Christian. Um so to so Dallas Willard taught philosophy at USC for half a century. He was chair of the philosophy department. Um, he was uh, also a devout Christian who also wrote a number, he, he had scholarly work, uh, he was a scholar on uh, uh, Husserl, but he also had uh, a series of books on Christian living and theology. Uh, those books include Divine Conspiracy, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Renovation of the Heart, The Allure of Gentleness, These are all books I I write about in in the spirit of our politics. Um, The book I was sent was The Divine Conspiracy. And I don't, it's not that this was completely absent in the teaching I had heard before, but it always felt like something of an uncertain rumor. And Dallas presented it with a clarity that is only exceeded by the clarity uh, 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 by which it's communicated in in scripture, uh, which is. Let me tell it this way. I I think you can get a sense in particular streams of Christianity including evangelicalism, but not only evangelicalism, That's sort of the pinnacle of the life of a Christian is praying the sinner's prayer, is raising your hand uh, in that church or in that auditorium. And that that's the point, that's the arrival point that you're that 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 is the pinnacle of the Christian life, and then you're just on sort of like a a, a glide path or sort of that's the exciting thing you hold on to until the afterlife until mm-hmm. you see his face again. Uh, Willard advances this idea um, that. The Christian life is about life with Jesus now, today.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That the kind of life Jesus offers is eternal life. But as Willard would say, eternity is in session now. That we are actually, uh, the life of the Christian is learning from Jesus how to do and be as Jesus would do and be if Jesus were us. And so, that makes raising the hand in the auditorium it makes uh praying the prayer the start the beginning a marker in a in a beautiful joyous life as opposed to something that you're constantly trying to go back to and get the feeling of and um and so th- th- this idea that Willard presents—that the gospel is about that, that Jesus' gospel—it's about the availability of the kingdom now. Was was just again, uh, it wasn't like oh, this is a complete break from everything I had ever known, you know. Uh, but it it gave it provided a clear vision for me about what it meant to follow Jesus now Mm -hmm. in the life I was living. And that's, that's a really powerful thing. Mm
0: -hmm. So talk to me about how that realization changed how you viewed politics and even your work at the time.
1: Oh gosh. So, so uh, you know, in, in, in so many ways, I mean, so um, I think that there is there is this idea that politics is this area of life in which Jesus is simply not up to the task that, uh, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, when people talk with me about voting, the image that will often be brought to mind is that of the person. Uh, and, and this is sort of the, the, the sense that I have that, uh, how, how, how they think it is when they're voting, which is, you know, they, they head into the voting booth, close the curtain, uh, are faced with this daunting decision that they aren't quite uh, sure about, but they feel a lot of sort of weight and pressure. Um, and then they step out of the voting booth, open the curtain, and, and Jesus is standing there, and they kind of have to explain to Jesus what happened you know oh jesus you wouldn't believe what i had to deal with in there it was crazy i don't know if you'd understand but we have this thing politics and we're in a democracy it means i'm a i'm a citizen and so i kind of have responsibility but i don't have a i don't have total say over everything but i still have to make a choice and and it's it's they need to uh, um and i want to willard's work. Part of what I'm trying to do with the book is help Christians to understand that the resources of their faith are for all of life, including politics, that the kind of person Jesus is calling them to be is for all of life, including politics, Um, and that there are resources available to them which make it, Possible uh, to enter even politics and political life, and to view it as a forum for, for instance, loving their neighbor, to view politics as as presenting opportunities for the cultivation of joy, of gentleness, of self control, Uh, and Dallas's work. really helped me begin to elucidate uh some 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 of these things Mm
0: -hmm. i i i wish that was more of the case for christians it seems like it doesn't tend to always be that way and i i would just be curious to hear like any any thoughts to why that is any thoughts to why there's this you know divide between you know christianity or my faith and then politics
1: yes uh So in the third chapter of my book, I discuss what Willard referred to as gospels of sin management. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I talk about something I I call the fixer gospel. And, you know, if this isn't for listeners, if this isn't your experience, that's that's fine. That's okay. This is the basic message that uh, many Christians are essentially presented with, which is, you, you know and, and i take the term the fixer gospel from uh you, you know if you watch like you know gangster uh movies or um i use the example of uh pulp pulp fiction mm-hmm. uh you know the the fixer is is almost never the main character uh uh in in most of these sorts of scenes the the fixer is The person who gets called in to cover up and take care of the protagonist's problem, so that the storyline and so that the protagonist uh, can continue to pursue their goals. So uh, 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 you know uh, uh, something uh, goes wrong at a heist. Uh, Someone gets uh, uh, someone gets killed to cover up the crime. You call in the fixer to get the blood out of the carpet and do something with the body, so that and and another essential thing about the fixer is once they take care of the job, the whole point is you never want you don't want to know exactly how they do it, and you never want to hear from them again. Mm -hmm. Like often these movies will have the line, "Don't call me, I'll call you," Uh, and essentially. the gospel that many Americans are presented with is: uh, you have a sin problem. Uh, Jesus uh, is the answer to your sin problem. Sin is why you can't go to heaven. If you call on Jesus, if if you believe that Jesus takes care of the sin problem, then He takes care of the sin problem for you, and you could go about your life um, with the assurance that. He's taking care of it and that you'll end up in the good place and those who don't make the call they end up in the bad place uh what this message does uh, intentionally or not is you know willard argues so willard called this the great omission uh which you know so the great great commission he says he says the the making of disciples is the great omission from the Great Commission. It's, it's been left out of many tellings of the gospel. It's been left to be something that's not essential. Uh, what this does when it's transferred into, into politics, but not just politics, other areas of life, um, is that the kind of person you are is made at best a secondary aspect of what it means to be a Christian. Certainly not an essential aspect. Actually, a lot of, of folks who sort of teach in this way m- m- take great strains to say, actually, there is no aspect of character which can be identified with being a Christian because that would mean. That you're justified by works and not faith, that that would be a gospel of of works. Uh, uh, and and also if you even if you if you talk about uh, becoming more like Jesus, yeah, uh, it's a rejection of grace. Like that, that you you don't have anything to do with that. The Holy Spirit will take care of that. And you, you just, you um, uh, humbly, and I'm open to um, uh, you know other other points of view, and I'm 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 learning, I'm you know l- learning. Um, I don't think you'll find that gospel in scriptures. I don't think that there's any uh, any place in the scriptures where uh, you'll uh, uh, read of Jesus uh, giving what John Orpberg would call the minimal entrance requirements to heaven. That is not the gospel that Jesus offered. Uh, and and wh- again, what that does when you take it into politics, um, what does it mean to have a Christian politics in the popular conception? It means that you hold the right position on one or two lines of political doctrine. And it doesn't matter how you advance those positions, you could do so in the most destructive way imaginable, but what makes it a Christian politics is uh, that you're willing to say yes when you're meant to say yes, uh, and you're willing to say no when you're expected to say no um, uh, on very you know narrow points, and everything else is just kind of optional. Well, well, the two go together. That's mm-hmm. that's this, that's the argument I make in the book that this isn't a this isn't a coincidence.
0: Hmm. yeah and, and you talk about how that that divide or that us us following that um that false gospel leads to uh and I, i'm gonna try to get this right political sectarianism is that how you say that
1: yeah that's it okay. yeah that that's how that's how you say it uh, okay
0: so yeah. would you I was going to say, would you mind unpacking what that is? And I know that you get into like the three components yes. of that too. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah. So political sectarianism is a framework that a number of social
1: scientists released in 2020 that I think is tremendously helpful. That They were attempting to uh, define the particular kind of political polarization we have today mm-hmm. and what they said is political sectarianism is a toxic cocktail made up of three ingredients: an aversion, an aversion towards your uh, your perceived or actual political opponents, uh, the tendency to other your political uh, opponents, uh, and a misplaced moralism by which they mean uh, you uh, political disagreement is uh, heightened to, uh, the level of sin or, uh, good and evil. Uh, and these, these three ingredients make up m- much of the logic of how our politics, how our politics operates. There are a number of, uh, uh, problems with this, uh, from a civic perspective. I mean, first it's just, um, Undermining trust in government. It's making government less effective. It's uh, turning, uh, leading folks to not want to engage in politics at all. So it's uh, lowering democratic accountability. I mean, we could go on and on. Mm -hmm. From a Christian perspective, it means that these tendencies, aversion, moralism, othering, are taking up so much space and driving so much of our activity that uh, there's little room or imagination for a politics of willing the good of others, uh, for a politics of right-sized expectations and right-sized burdens, uh, for a politics where uh, compromise and humility has a role. Uh, And so, so, yes, this concept of political sectarianism is a through line through the book. Mm -hmm. Because I believe that Christian resources offer a tremendous deal to undermine these three pillars or these ingredients of political sectarianism. And gosh, our politics could really benefit from the gift of these resources undermining some of the toxicity that's in our politics today
0: hmm Do you want to uh, talk about one or two of those resources that can help us in this uh, political sectarianism? Yeah,
1: sure. So I um, have an entire uh, chapter on uh, in the book on uh, spiritual disciplines, mm-hmm. both uh, spiritual disciplines or practices, uh, both traditional practices that I think apply in particular ways to our public life. So for instance, I think the disciplines of silence and solitude are um, uh, uh, useful and helpful throughout time. In the context of the kind of political and media culture we have now, they're especially potent. And so um, I have found in my own life and in the life of others you you spend an hour in silence or you take twelve hours and this isn't a this doesn't have to be a bougie thing I think a lot of people are like well, I don't have time to rent a cabin and go out into the woods I live in I live in a big city I don't know I, I I I have a hard time finding a tree and you want me to go in the forest no that's not what it's not about setting it's not about um if I in my own life and in the life of others you take 12 hours of solitude and sometimes that's all it takes and you start to realize well, f- well first as Willard would say you 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 might come upon the fact that you have a soul and that your soul is not just a um your soul is not just the sum of all of the various inputs the various you know pundits and influencers and influences that are seeking to get at and shape you there's actually a you that is more than the sum of those influences and you start you might start to ask questions like Maybe my political opponents, maybe people who disagree with me politically, maybe they disagree with me not because they're evil people or because they want to hurt my children or because they have a vendetta against me. You start to get an imagination that's not centered in those influence, but centered uh, uh, in, a, in a deeper reality. So, so I could talk about that for a long time, but silence and solitude... I there are other uh traditional disciplines fasting celebration worship uh, uh prayer reading scripture study uh mm-hmm. that that I talk about in the book I also offer a set of 21st century uh disciplines that I think are particularly calibrated for For the time, even if they're not a traditional discipline, so uh, so to speak. So I talk about uh, how to read the news Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and some some habits that we could bring to processing and reading reading the news. I I I talk about um, the, the 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 practice of affirming those you disagree with and critiquing those that you typically uh uh agree with and partner with and and uh, and view yourself in the same camp with in politics and so um and, and then i'll just close by saying this whole chapter you know because i there are these there are these ideas the the last thing i want people to get from this related to politics or even just related to spiritual formation generally is that spiritual formation is about adding a bunch of new activities and tasks that you need to uh check off one by one and uh you you, you it's it's a uh you know there it, there's a taskmaster no these are about what's helpful uh to you and don't do what's not helpful mm-hmm. um but at the end of the chapter i um i create a sort of composite character Laura and describe a week in the life of Laura to try and put some some meat on the bones of, okay, there are all these various practices and ideas. What might it practically look in the life of a real person with responsibilities and a family and a job and all these kinds of things? What might it look for this person to take seriously the idea that politics can be a forum, not the only forum, not even the most important forum, but a forum uh, through which they are pursuing formation unto the likeness of Christ?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you you mentioned several of the the twenty first century like habits and stuff. Would you mind elaborating just a little bit more on the how to read the news piece of it? Because at least at least for me, that's something that I'm I feel like I'm always trying to figure out. Okay, how do I get better at reading the news? What what do I you know what do I believe? What is maybe an exaggeration? What are they you know maybe under um, underreporting things like that.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. So yeah, there are a few tips I offer. Um, One is uh, to to read locally. I think that there's been such a nationalization and sensationalism around news, which isn't completely absent from from local news. But um, with local news, there's a particularity that can be really, really edifying. one of the things that's happening in our politics right now is because uh, so many of the, so much of the news that we receive is is national or international. Our attention is drawn uh, to. Uh, 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 we almost can be tempted or drawn into treating our news as. Uh, a form of entertainment or a a form of kind of tourism where we're just sort of spectating, but not really in contact with what is what we're reading about. Well, if you read about local news, if you read local news, uh, read the local news long enough and you'll read about someone that, you know, personally, you'll read about what's happening in your own neighborhood, not just in your own city, but you know, a business closing down in your neighborhood, and then you then you could start asking questions. Well, uh, how, how is the business owner doing? H- how are the people that that business was serving doing? What might have led to that business closing? Might there be uh, uh, factors uh, uh, that led to that business closing or school closing? Or a program shutting down a nonprofit that was uh, serving hungry people. Well, the nonprofit closed down. Who, who who's serving the people that the nonprofit uh, used to serve? And, and you just your imagination gets redirected from uh, uh, this sort of news as entertainment to actually, this is the life of the community in which God has placed me. So. Read locally. I, I won't uh, sort of go go yeah. into uh, you know. I think uh, reading uh, non anxiously, uh, uh, but within reason and capacity, and capacity changes over season. Trying to trying to read uh, broadly, uh, 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 trying to read not to affirm your own point of view all of the time, but trying to read for insight. And so this is something I talk about both in this section about news, but also throughout the book. You know, our our politics is... um, our our Political actors like to suggest that the disagreements that we have are between good and evil, between just blatantly right and blatantly wrong. If you even take a bit of time to scratch under the, the surface typically what you'll find is actually these issues are pretty complicated Mm -hmm. and you may not change your mind on the, the, you know, on the, on the policy position itself. But if you dig, you might have a better understanding of why people might, might disagree with you. And you might even come to uh, sympathize and even agree with some of the reasons for why they would disagree with the policy position you ultimately think is the right thing to do. And when that starts to happen, then you create all kinds of opportunities for improving your own point of view, for mitigating the conso- the negative consequences of your point of view, of being able to advocate for others who might disagree with you on a particular point, but you can partner on others, and so uh, and so 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 that can be an, another helpful aspect of of news consumption, as opposed to watching two hours of cable news as a civic duty and all you're getting out of it is a high blood pressure and yelling at, uh, family members around you. Cause you're just so angry. You don't know where to, where, where else to express yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, another thing, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's actually, it is, it is an entire chapter that you talk about is you also talk about the challenge of, uh, the disappearance of moral knowledge as yes. well. Would you mind yeah. talking a little bit about that and even like how how do we get to how do how do we get there?
1: yeah, well, so yeah, I think this is a this is an important important concept uh so this is you know the opening chapter of the spirit of our politics is on basically on political sectarianism and and mm-hmm. just trying to set some context for the kind of politics that we have right now, but the second chapter is on is is on this idea of the disappearance of moral knowledge. This was one of the principal so, sort of scholarly pursuits of Willard. And there's an academic book on the subject written by Willard that was um, he wasn't able to finish the book during his life. A few of his PhD students finished it for him. Um, but the disappearance of moral knowledge basically refers to this idea that in the post-World War II era, gatekeepers of knowledge, by which he principally means academia, but also others, um, uh, made a decision and acted on the decision uh, that uh, religion uh, and uh, m- moral knowledge does not count, does not offer, pub- it is not a publicly available source of knowledge. Essentially, that um scientific knowledge is the principal and even sole source of publicly available knowledge and at best moral and religious knowledge uh is a a personal form of knowledge that may be beneficial to individuals or uh, specific people groups but isn't something that that can be uh should inform public decision making uh, for instance um this uh idea has um, profound consequences for 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 one uh, just because you um, operate as if moral knowledge is not publicly available or publicly salient knowledge, it doesn't mean that uh, decisions which involve and invoke moral knowledge are not made. Our politics is constantly making moral judgments, and we constantly make moral judgments. What's changed is that we make these moral assertions uh, uh, with a lack of confidence that they have any real basis in reality at all. Um, And so this is consequential for the lives we lead. I mean, this is part of why I I spoke earlier in this conversation just about the idea that sort of Jesus's way of life is not up to the task, not just Mm -hmm. of politics, but you see this creep into all kinds of areas of people's lives, their work lives, their relation, their relational lives. Um, but then when you specifically talk about politics, oh, okay, if, if moral knowledge doesn't apply in politics, a lot of people take that to mean that politics is this, is this area of life where anything goes. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are in in politics because to ask those kinds of questions is in some ways inappropriate. Or not even a real conversation that you could have, because because who who could say what kind of person uh, people should be? That that is uh, that that's that's judgmental, mm-hmm. and so I, I I unpack the both how the disappearance of moral knowledge developed, and also um, why it's important for this discussion about spiritual formation and and our political life.
0: Yeah. yeah, talk to talk to me a little bit about what we do with that dynamic of like the. The disappearance of moral knowledge like is there anything that we can do to facilitate like h- how do how do we bridge the gap and yeah if that's the case well so
1: um so there are reasons some of them good that need to you know that that legitimate i should say mm-hmm. they have merit that we need to contend with for why that that developed i mean i mean the 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 the, the, the truth is is that assertions of moral knowledge uh, can be used in ways that are oppressive and burdensome, and, and like there's a reason why moral knowledge disappeared is because people thought they were better off without it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how how we how we bridge that? Um, I see some hopeful signs already. I I I think that um, we are already revising uh, a sort of scientism that that uh that suggests that as long as we have the right data set in front of us as long as we run the right experiments they'll tell us what to do we, we're actually starting to come to realize uh as a culture that uh uh the experiments that are run and the data that is gathered are moral decisions in part, our mm-hmm. ethical decisions in part. And so, uh, so I already see the gap closing. I think, uh, I talk in the book about ways in which, you know, for instance, there are, uh, health organizations that have, and, and right, this is a medical field. If anything's going to, uh, uh signal sort of uh of privileging or the exclusive access to truth of science it would be the medical field but we're seeing medical fields all of a sudden acknowledge spiritual health as a component of the of a holistic conception of health for the person we're seeing conversation about alternative ways of knowing in the medical field and in other fields and so yeah i think reality is uh bursting in on these kinds of questions. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What Christians could do and what others could do is make these moral, uh, make their moral questions and their moral grapplings explicit, as opposed to um, feeling like all of that has to happen in private and uh, in a personal way. And then the the, the public front is uh that um you know you're motivated uh or, or making your decisions only based in in uh in, in public policy uh there's been a term of art uh that is 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 now ubiquitous you know evidence based policy making well the problem is when i was in government uh everyone would say that their position was evidence based uh and of course what what goes unsaid is w- which evidence uh, and and also what goes unsaid is that usually you could you could sort out pretty quickly, okay, this person is bringing their evidence based argument, but they aren't motivated by that. the evidence actually the 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 evidence based uh, uh the the evidence to support their position actually came after they. Decided what position they wanted to hold, and then they marshaled the evidence that would support it. Um, so, 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 let's. There are certainly, um, there are certainly, it, it it can be fraught. But as Christians, and really as people, we we ought to want to deal with reality, mm-hmm. and we live in a moral universe, and that is just sort of an unavoidable fact. And so, we need to have these these conversations.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up reality because that's where I wanted to go next and it's and it's this quote uh that you have in the book and you say which which was very very uh I don't know it just it, felt, it it hit me in the gut whenever I read it but you write, one of the greatest challenges to the Christian faith today is the belief that genuine faith is unsupported by reality and I remember reading that and just going like, wow that that is a lot. Can you can you yeah. expound on that just a little bit?
1: Yes. So um there have been strands of Christian thought that have um, in and certainly sort of popular discourse which pitted faith and knowledge as opposed to one another. So right, so 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 uh faith is uh what you would uh it is what you believe even if you don't think there's any reason to believe it Mm -hmm. uh and um if if, uh, if if you do not believe if if you are not connecting faith with knowledge um, then when you are making decisions, you are not going to make decisions based off what you think you're supposed to believe. And so faith and knowledge are not opposed to one another. They actually they actually support one another. Uh, read through scripture and pay attention to how often knowledge is referred to. Uh, pay attention to how uh, Jesus talks about how he wants his disciples to relate to him uh, and uh, to to uh, uh, how they are to grow in faith. And what you won't find is uh, G- Jesus uh, suggesting that uh, they ought to believe things about him that they cannot experience to be true. Unfortunately, so much of sort of um uh popular christian rhetoric is um you don't really you don't really have uh faith if you have evidence for it. <laughs> you know, you you don't you uh so so we actually privilege these testimonies which you know, God works in Incredible ways, and I don't mean to undermine the testimonies um, them, themselves. I praise God for them, um, but uh, there are uh, some streams in which testimonies, in which people say, "You know, it made no rational sense to me at all. I didn't even think about it. I just felt, you know, I I just felt." A wave of emotion and, and knew him to or, or it sort of I felt a wave of emotion and gave my gave my life to Jesus. And then sometimes folks will say, you know, it still doesn't make much sense to me, but but this is the life I've chosen. Mm-hmm. Well, you know you you should walk down the path of trying to make it make sense to you because that's gonna be mm-hmm. really important in your walk with Jesus, that yeah. what he's asking of you makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, you're not likely to do it when it really counts.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I got one other question I want to ask you about, but before that, is there anything in the book or anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about? Uh,
1: You know, I I include a chapter in the book specifically addressed to pastors and parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I do that for a number of reasons one i just feel parents and pastors are under immense pressure uh, as, uh, particularly in this political environment and i wanted to encourage them and so that's the first thing the pressure i sense parents and pastors are, are having and that i hear from parents and pastors all over the country the second thing is that um Parents and pastors are um, have critical roles and callings given by God uh, that are essential to the formation of those under their influence. And so uh, I think we all have a role to play. But for parents and pastors... Uh, to gain clarity on the connection between the kind of people we are and the kind of public life that we have and will have uh, I think is just a a, a a vital and empowering thing in an environment where I feel like pastors and parents are often feeling undermined and disempowered uh and and uh, th- that is that that is not the. Uh, uh, that is not reflective of the dignity of the, of the offices, if I may use the term uh, that that God has called them to.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, as we're closing out, I would love to hear what helps you keep going in this con- in like in this conversation, because I can imagine, you know, it could be, it could be hard yeah. some days it could be very discouraging. And I would just be, I would just love to hear what keeps you going in promoting this conversation and, and uh, facilitate or i guess championing this idea of our of our faith intersecting with our public life as well and with politics yeah our um
1: i've seen the difference it makes and i i i think our our nation and our public life desperately needs the kinds of contributions um, that can be uniquely resourced by what Christianity offers and what life with of Jesus offers. And so I I care a great deal for the public good. Uh and I think this is an essential essential uh aspect of, of that. I also care a great deal about the life of the church and uh and um and 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 uh, Christians uh, moving uh, into deeper and deeper confidence in Jesus and uh, whole life discipleship is just not going to be possible if we view politics as somehow outside of the reach mm-hmm. of God. In particular, our our own behavior and conduct as somehow um, uh, uh, the life Jesus has called us to being irrelevant to our political conduct and the kind of people we are in politics. And so that that's what drives me, this deep concern, care for our politics, our the, the the well-being of our communities and and also um
0: the life of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know that people are going to want to, you know, keep up with you, Michael, and get your book The Spirit of Our Politics. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Oh, you know, it's
1: sold at uh, anywhere that you enjoy uh, uh purchasing your books and so, you know, whether it's your lo- local bookstore uh uh if amazon's you know convenient for you uh you can get it wherever wherever books are sold uh would encourage folks to check in on the work of the organization i i i am honored to lead the, the center for christianity and public life and folks can check out our website at ccpubliclife.org um and then of course uh i'm i'm on uh instagram at uh michael ware and uh X. Uh Gosh, I need to get used to that. I'm yeah. uh, Michael Arware <laughs> and would love to check in with folks uh, on, the, on those platforms.
0: Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for just a great conversation. And just thank you for doing the work and for sharing it with us today. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate you. So just as we're closing out, I want to just kind of drive home uh, the conversation with two other two other thoughts uh, that we didn't get a chance to talk about in there one is a quote from Dallas Willard and it it really emphasizes and gets at the heartbeat of what what we're trying to do here on the podcast and where we're trying why I'm trying to create a place to where we can engage with people that we disagree with but at the same time even if we disagree with them learning that we can we can learn something we could grow from that conversation from interacting with them as well and here is the quote the value of being right is that it enables you to deal effectively with reality and integrate your life with reality appropriately end of quote and it just makes me think of this journey to trying to figure out how to get things right and i i don't even know if that's that's possible for us to do but fighting for that, fighting for reality, fighting on this on this journey of learning, of of this path of humility to engaging with people that you disagree with, and knowing that we're just trying to figure out reality. And at the same time, it makes me think of this other quote that I want to read, because the reason why we're we're fighting for reality, at least for for those of us who are Christians, the reason why we should fight for reality is because that will help us better love the people around us and learn to love ourselves and learn to love our neighbor too another quote from the book is this, is that Christians participate in politics, and I think you could put anything in there not as an act of imposition but out of a spirit of loving service, that that should be our motivator that our motivator should be love our motivation should be love our our motivation should be love of neighbor of love of the people around us whether it's politics or whatever area of life and so with that if you have enjoyed this conversation if you're looking to try to figure out um reality or just understand different perspectives or how people see things and continue to learn and grow please subscribe to my Substack, to where i give recommendations of some of the best things that i am currently learning from this wall and i think that's all that i have for today so i do want to say thank you uh to michael ware for being on the podcast and for the good conversation thank you to Sam massey for creating the music for this podcast And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Kayla Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.